the people of Watts, California riot. Crying burn, baby burn. I don't think it's over. I, I think it lasts until to people understand what's going on. I know it's going to be tonight, going to be tomorrow night, and it gonna, you know, it's going to be until people straighten this up. Over six days in the summer of 1965, the Watts riots exploded across predominantly black South L.A. Residents were already livid about a lack of jobs and being segregated to live mostly on the city's south side. But most of all, black people were tired of relentless police brutality. So one August day, after a traffic stop involving a young black man named Marquette Fry, they rose up to fight the police. Fry had been pulled over for alleged reckless driving. His mother rushed to the scene, and a crowd quickly formed. That's when someone shoved Fry's mom, and a cop whipped out a shotgun. Here's UCLA professor Brenda Stevenson. It was a very, very hot day. Many people were outside uh, their houses. The police were notorious for abusing black people in this community, so a crowd did gather quickly. And so the spark went on from there. The notion that black people were not equal before the law, this all kind of came together and boiled up into this moment. Fry, his mother, and his stepbrother were soon arrested. The crowd started throwing rocks at the cops. It mushroomed from there. To understand how Willie Robinson brought Los Angeles together, you have to understand how things fell apart. The Watts riots pit white people against black and police against civilians. In six days, nearly 3,500 people were arrested. More than 1,000 were injured. And 34 people died. 25 were black. Law enforcement authorities put up a sign at the edge of the riot zone that read, turn left or get shot. It is the most destructive race riot in American history. 3,000 square blocks of Los Angeles are turned into a battlefield. More than 13,000 National Guardsmen were deployed in South LA, unleashing military might on their fellow Americans. The authorities' response was infamously heavy-handed. LAPD Chief William H. Parker actually compared fighting rioters to fighting the Viet Cong. And by the time the riot was over, South LA looked like a war zone. And this was the city Willie would soon come home to. He would do so, burdened by the guilt he felt over surviving the Vietnam War. And my buddies are still over there dying and losing parts of their bodies. But I come home and I'm still in one piece. That audio is from the interview Brotherhood of Street Racers member Fabian Arroyo did with Willie in 2009. Fabian was a toddler when the riots broke out, so he doesn't remember how ugly it got. At first, black residents of South LA looted. Then they torched white-owned establishments. Stevenson, a professor of African American history, noted that uprisings are always messy and acknowledged that some rioters in Watts didn't have the best intentions. Yes, innocent people are going to be harmed, um, as they are whatever war zone we go into, whatever rebellion or revolution we have. There is an ideal, there's a reality of social change, of activism. During the riot, some black people pulled white motorists out of their cars and beat them up. Well, what people did find out was that most of the people who were arrested did not have criminal records. Many of the people who were pulled over uh, and beaten were throwing racial epithets. Willie returned to L.A. in 1966, about a year after the riots. South L.A. was still raw, but some of the immediate anger had faded. And Willie, heartbroken over what had happened to his city, had a renewed sense of purpose. Here's Fabian, 
he didn't want to see his city get torn apart, you know, and he watched another city that he tore apart. And that's what he just didn't want to see none of that. Willie knew cars could unite people. And it was starting to seem possible to enjoy something as simple as street racing again. So that's what Willie did. But now, those late nights on the streets of L.A. had a new purpose. Because now he said that God had spared him so he could fulfill his destiny. We brought together white, black, brown, and yellow people racing. The riots had revealed the depths of L.A.'s troubles. And this was an unexpected bright spot. So police started showing up to Willie's races, but they'd leave their uniforms at home. Cops came in incognito looking like they were street racers too. So they'd walk up to the white racers and say, hey, aren't you scared being down here? The Watts riots was just a year ago, and now you're in Watts after midnight. Aren't you afraid? And, and they said no, because uh, it's all about racing. Willie wasn't just healing his own community. He was repairing relationships with everyone, including white people. And the cops were realizing that aligning with Willie could help them overhaul their image. And so that's when the Los Angeles Police Department got the idea of, uh, let's organize this. Big Willie found a way to work with cops at a time when... The LAPD was considered the enemy of the people, Black people and Latino people in particular. To be able to work with an organization that everybody would say, oh man, don't bother with those people. They're the problem. They're not the solution. The Watts riots changed everything for Willie. Today we're going to talk about the most crucial period of time in his life, 1965 to 1969. This is when he met the woman who'd become his wife, got the car of his dreams, and started what would become his life work. This is the time that transformed him into the man known as Big Willie. I'm Daniel Miller, staff writer at the Los Angeles Times, and this is Larger Than Life, a documentary podcast about L.A. street racer Big Willie Robinson. If Willie was going to bring his message of peace through wheels to all of L.A., he'd need to establish himself as the leader of the street racers. Not just in the eyes of other gearheads, but in the eyes of the city at large. To do this, he'd have to organize the races and cultivate the media. Stan Goldstein knows this part of Willie's story better than anyone, because he was a street racer too. He'd been hearing about Willie, so he decided to pay him a visit at the gym he was managing in South L.A., you know, you can imagine this nice Jewish boy walking into this black gym. It was really an experience. Goldstein had been organizing car clubs in suburban San Fernando Valley. Once he met Willie, the two began working together, uniting black and white racers, sometimes in Willie's neck of the woods and sometimes in the valley. This new coalition, people of many backgrounds and from all over the city, was sending a message to the cops and the politicians. Street racers were a constituency that needed to be taken seriously. And Willie was leading the charge. Because amid the chaos of competition, he could ensure order for all. The problem in the early days was who was going to hold the money. And it was not uncommon to win a race and then all of a sudden find that the guy you just beat has has boogied out of town with the money. Willie gained his power because he became the banker. Willie didn't just hold the money. The six foot six, 300 pound racer oversaw everything. And he was meticulous. He'd even have a fire crew and a medical squad on hand. He made the races safer, but not any less thrilling. 
And that mattered, because they could be deadly. But it was Willie's inclusive message that energized the scene. And that got the media's attention. So reporters started looking into a photogenic fast talker who was helping keep the peace in South L.A., a 50-square-mile section of the city south of the 10 freeway. In a story in the November 20th, 1966 edition of the L.A. Times West magazine, Willie is described as a promoter of street races in the area of 43rd and Vermont. There's a huge photograph of him on the last page of the story. He looks like an action hero, his muscles bulging beneath a tight white T-shirt. They had one big picture there with me standing there holding the money. And the owner of the Los Angeles Times was a billionaire, Otis Chandler. They called me Big Willie. Imagine how Willie was feeling. He had only recently returned from the army. The rubble from the riots was still on the ground. But at the same time, he was gaining a following. He had even earned his catchy nickname. The article helped create an indelible character. And Chandler had been the one to push for it, forever linking him and Willie. It's possible that Chandler wouldn't have been moved to help Willie if not for the riots. Friends of Chandler's told me that the mogul drove his Porsche down to Watts during the uprising, risking his life to see how he could help. Both Chandler and Willie seem haunted by the riot, and united by it. Pat Holmes, one of Chandler's friends, said that Willie and the publisher got together and started a conversation. They together talked about what they could do to alleviate this buildup of steam in the inner city. By 1968, Willie had picked up a job working at an aluminum plant. He also was putting in hours at a gym, where he both worked and trained with the goal of competing in the Mr. America competition. And he was constantly street racing, staging bigger and bigger spectacles. There wasn't much money in organizing races, but Big Willie was making a name for himself. And his profile was growing in another way, at a new nightclub on Crenshaw Boulevard in South L.A. It was called Maverick's Flat. And it was a place the LA Times said epitomized the hip, sophisticated camaraderie that blossomed during the civil rights era. And Willie became a fixture there. But even more important than that, he'd meet the love of his life at Mavericks. Willie went often, sometimes to dance and on other occasions to work as a bouncer. At Mavericks, he elevated his profile, secured connections, and learned how to get along with anyone and everyone. That's according to John Daniels, the club's founder. Big Willie was a good dancer, and he was a good socializer. He was young, and he was big and mighty and very affable. He became very popular in the club, and people liked him. Mavericks was a scene. The Temptations played on opening night. Ike and Tina Turner. The Supremes, Marvin Gaye, they all came through. Everyone wanted to be there, and not everyone could get in. Marlon Brando used to come down there all the time. He uh, would come in with no shoes on, and he went right back out. Even if Willie sometimes had to bounce people out of Mavericks, he did it with care. And working as a bouncer, Willie had some wild run-ins. He told his friend Rick Gorski about it. So uh, one night in the bar, he was standing there at the door, and he, he saw a fist coming at him, and he caught it. This gentleman said, I heard you're the toughest guy around. And Big Willie said, well, who's asking? He said, well, my name's Cassius Clay, and this is Jim Brown. All that time hanging out with A-listers taught Willie another thing, how to be one himself. He didn't drink or do drugs, but he'd party all night long, with VIPs like the star of the car chase thriller, Bullet. Who did I meet and had breakfast with and everything? Steve McQueen. We had breakfast at the Pancake House. Above all of that, Mavericks was where Willie met his soulmate. 
I spotted her. I started looking at her. I said, she's from New Orleans. Because, you know, New Orleans is very mixed. When Willie first saw Tamiko Smith at Mavericks, he was instantly smitten with the waitress. In photographs, it's her afro that stands out. It looks like it could be a foot tall. In pictures, she's often wearing dark pants and a racing jacket. It makes her look like a soldier. But she's almost always beaming. He said she was the most beautiful woman he ever seen. Tamiko was the daughter of a Japanese woman and an African-American serviceman stationed overseas. She spent her early years in Japan. In 1953, when Tamiko was four, her family immigrated to the U.S. Eventually, Tamiko moved to L.A. and connected with a relative, Karen Daniels. At the time, Karen was dating Mavericks owner John Daniels. And she got Tamiko a job at Mavericks, though she seemed out of place at the hip club. She was very shy. Tamiko was kind of like an oddball. She didn't quite fit into the girly thing. Soon after Willie first approached Tamiko, they were going out. He took her to a drag strip on one of their early dates. And before long, they married. Standing with Willie, they looked like dynamite couple. And they became a love affair for all time. Tamiko may have been a shy young woman when Willie first met her at Mavericks, but she quickly blossomed. According to Karen Daniels, they soon had all the same interests, like cars. She was one of the fastest California female drivers. A love for pumping iron. She got into physical fitness and uh, she lifted weight. She was really strong. And even weapons. I mean, she used to carry this big handbag. She carried a gun. If something goes wrong, she's prepared. In Willie, Tamiko found someone who accepted her for who she was. God sent me a helper. He sent an angel to help me. He sent me my lovely wife, Tamiko. Right away, uh, she fell right in line working with me. And we started recruiting ladies, getting more ladies involved. Female power. Several Brotherhood members told me that their group wouldn't have achieved what it did without Tamiko. She was always there, behind the scenes, working to ensure that things went smoothly. Willie and Tamiko needed each other. Could Willie have accomplished what he accomplished without her? Personally, I don't think he could have. I think she, had, she was a big part of it. Uh, she held it together. Three years after the riots, and two years after he left the Army, Willie's life was coming together. He had ins with the Los Angeles Times, he was generating goodwill with the LAPD, and most importantly, he had found his life partner. That's when he realized how he could make his mark. Here's Maverick's founder, John Daniels, again. He got an idea because... So many of these kids were rolling up and down Crenshaw Boulevard with all this energy and no place to go in these hot cars. So he founded the International Brotherhood of Street Racers. He founded that right out of the Mavericks. At first, the group was known simply as the Street Racers of Los Angeles County. It was a name the LAPD had become familiar with as it quietly watched Big Willie operate. But a lieutenant named Frank Beeson wanted a much more active relationship. He was stationed in South LA's 77th Precinct. Beeson must have seen firsthand the impact Willie was having. So he wanted to propose a radical idea to the leader of the street racers. First, though, Beeson needed to track Willie down. So Beeson told everybody at roll call, when you catch the street racers out doing their thing, give him my card. Tell him it's peaceful. Soon enough, the cops showed up at a street race, ready to deliver Beeson's message. 
Here's Ted Moser, a friend of Willie's. The cops came in, and, and Willie was out of his car and took off running. And, and the cops are chasing him down. They go, stop, stop, stop. The story he's telling sounds terrifying. Moser is only laughing because he knows the run-in ends happily. Willie said he hit the fence, getting ready to jump over the fence, and the guy caught him by the boot, and he goes, hey, we don't want to arrest you. We just want to talk to you. He came down, and he goes, look, we like what you're doing. We want to help sanction this. So, at the LAPD's invitation, Willie headed to City Hall for a meeting. That's when he met City Councilman Tom Bradley, a former cop and rising Black politician who would soon become deeply connected to the Brotherhood. The purpose of this meeting is to make sure that we don't have another riot. They were trying to improve relations with the Black community because that's what the Watts riots was really about. And Lieutenant Frank Beeson has an idea. He said, Big Willie and a whole bunch of street racers from all the communities, they get together at midnight and they illegally run on our streets. But the main thing is that they're coming together to have fun. They hatched a plan, and Willie formally organized the group in 1968. So they said, well, uh, Willie, uh, what we'll do, we'll get some firemen and police officers to work with you. And right away, it clicked. Willie is saying that the authorities told him that law enforcement would help him stage street races. The Watts riots had been touched off a few years earlier by a traffic stop involving a black man. Now, the police were going to help Big Willie break the law on city streets. Two former LAPD chiefs, Bernard Parks and Charlie Beck, both said that after the riots, it was evident that policing had to change. Parks, who was black, said that animosity toward the LAPD lingered in South LA after the uprising, leading the police to reconsider everything from its on-the-ground tactics, including the use of force, to the way it handled community outreach. He said the LAPD was... Looking at resolving the issues of the riot and also looking in the future to where we would not experience another riot. Beck said the police department did some serious self-reflection. And it was obvious how Willie could help it improve its standing in South L.A. There was a tremendous need at the time, you know, and it was was something I think that was a pretty natural fix for the LAPD. Given the circumstances, this gambit made sense. The LAPD could feel secure knowing it was partnering with Big Willie, a man who understood authority, a veteran whose resume included war heroics. That would have resonated with cops. And Willie realized he was being called to duty all over again. He and Beeson talked it over. So I'm being drafted into this. Yes. And you're going to have to pretend that you are organizing this although you're going to have policemen and firemen working with you. And so I said, okay, you know, it's like I heard a little voice from God and said it was all right. Willie may have been co-opted by a desperate and still flawed police force, but he was also getting something out of the arrangement. This was a real exchange. Willie's association with law enforcement raised his profile, and it had an immediate practical effect. With the help of police and firemen, he could save more lives. But first, he'd have to deliver a message to the street racers that they should come down to Exposition Boulevard and pay no mind to the police on hand. 
My job is to go tell all the racists they're not going to get it busted. And some of the racists, they, they kind of said, well, Willie, I, I know for a fact you don't drink or smoke. You don't, you don't deal with drugs or nothing. But you really sound like you're high right now. Still, he convinced people to show up. Droves of people. And so Friday night, we held the first street race. A lot of people came. I would say about, about a thousand. Maybe 2,000 people showed up. But there was a problem. No one in the sheepish crowd was prepared to compete, except for one racer, a white guy from the valley. And his dragster needed a push to get started. A black and white police car showed up. And everybody hollered, oh no, here we go, we're going to get busted. Willie, you said we weren't going to get busted. I said, you're not going to get busted. Everybody just freeze. Everything's cool. They jumped out of the police car and ran over and staged a dragster. <laughs> One of the cops ends up pushing it, push starting it, like a push car to get the guy going, which kind of broke the ice for everybody that they realized that the, the cops were there to help and support. And everybody is seeing this, and they shocked. And then the dragster makes a blast, and then the police backs out onto La Brea, and then they just disappear. That was all it took. That act of kindness by the police in service of the street racers' illicit activity, it recalibrated the dynamics in the streets. The next night, 5,000 people came out to race, Willie said. And so everybody was racing, man. And uh, I looked to the heavens and, uh, so God, this is it. This is why you spared me. To be Big Willie and the leader of the street racers and bring people together. So, what does the LAPD say about all of this? Nothing. The police force declined to comment. And key figures like Bradley and Beeson are dead. But I spoke to several former LAPD heavyweights who knew of Willie or worked directly with him. Among them were the former chiefs, Parks and Beck. And Beck said that this was part of the LAPD's history. I've heard it not just from, from Willie, but I heard it from you know, my predecessors running Southville, which is where this is. This is something that was in the lore of community action in South Los Angeles. Just as many had hoped, the association between the cops and the street racers began to help improve relationships. Soon, however, the Brotherhood and the LAPD faced a major challenge. Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis, Tennessee. All over America, black ghettos exploded in rage and grief. We, the street racers, we had communications totally with the Los Angeles Police Department. That weekend, we worked with the Los Angeles Police Department, and we went together through all the communities, from Compton, San Pedro, to to Van Nuys, Panorama City. We rode and told everybody, be cool. Martin Luther King stood for brotherhood, and that's what we're about. By the grace of God, we had no major accidents. Nobody ever hurt. And it was beautiful. After Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, major cities across the country rioted, from New York to Chicago. Upwards of 40 people died in all, and about 3,500 were injured. President Lyndon B. Johnson mobilized the Army and National Guard to respond to the growing crisis. And ultimately, 27,000 people were arrested. But in L.A., things largely remained peaceful. 
Here's Stevenson, the UCLA professor. It's not a repeat of Watts, and comparatively speaking with other places, particularly D.C. and some of the other cities, it was calm. Other cities were paying attention to what had and hadn't happened in L.A. So this was a shocker to the rest of the country because all of a sudden the LAPD was getting phone calls from Chicago, Detroit. How? What made L.A. not burn? And they say, the guy in charge of this is Big Willie. We'll put you in touch with Big Willie. And then next thing you know, we were going national. Willie seized on this moment. He started to give more interviews. And in December 1968, Drag Racing Magazine dubbed him King of the Street and detailed a race that drew 6,000 people. Newsweek profiled the Brotherhood and quoted a local businessman who said that Willie was a combination of Jewish mother and dictator. A slew of stories and other publications followed, spreading Willie's message nationwide. After helping keep the peace in L.A., Willie was now a public figure, and he reaped the rewards of it. He was enough of a star in the street racing world that he picked up celebrity endorsement deals, like one with American Racing Equipment, which ran ads for its wheels featuring Big Willie flexing in front of a fast ride. And a local auto dealership decided to give him a car. In 1969, Dodge put out an extreme version of its Charger muscle car. It was perfect for Willie. Only about 500 of the first-generation Dodge Charger Daytonas were ever built, making them extremely rare. And on top of that, the Daytona that Willie got was one of just dozens outfitted with a high-powered Hemi motor. He painted his red, and he called it the King Daytona. Cars had always been status symbols for Willie, dating back to his childhood in New Orleans. And in Willie's world, the King Daytona was the ultimate embodiment of success, an ultra-rare car fit for the action hero he was becoming. True to form, Willie wasn't content with a stock Daytona. He customized his to make it even faster. He had it souped up at Keith Black Racing Engines, which built motors for the top drag racers. Mel Jones, a street racer turned L.A. County Sheriff's deputy, said it paid off. He's got a Keith Black Hemi in that thing. Oh, my God, can't touch him. 150 miles an hour was fast in those days. Tomiko got a matching Daytona a few years later, a green one she named the Queen Daytona. These days, the king and queen cars would be worth a ton of money, maybe half a million dollars a piece, according to one estimate. But for Willie, what was most important was the mission. And being given the King Daytona, this was a sign of his mission's momentum. He was learning how to get exactly what he wanted, a skill that was about to come in handy. I want to propose that Willie was more strategic than he let on. I think Willie was working the system to get what he wanted. He had the same savvy as a politician. In just five years, Willie met his wife, forged ties with L.A. power players, founded the Brotherhood, and got his King Daytona. It was the most important stretch of his life. His influence was growing. More and more people flocked to his group's gatherings. But the throngs were starting to become a problem. And Willie said so to Mayor Sam Yorty. Then I started getting a little upset at Mayor Yorty. I said, Mayor Yorty, we are too big for the streets. I'm drawing 10, 15,000 people. I said, we need a raceway. But Willie said that Yorty wasn't interested. Rebuffed, Willie turned to an ally, the mayor's challenger in the 1969 election, Councilman Tom Bradley. He asked Bradley if he would help him open a raceway, and the councilman agreed. It was a quid pro quo. In exchange, the Brotherhood provided security for Bradley during the campaign. But there were immediate consequences. Yorty got really pissed. 
And we already said, that's it. The street racers are back in Councilman Bradley. And then he told all the police precincts, no more street racing. Bust them. It got worse for Willie. Yordi defeated Bradley, dashing his dream of becoming the first African-American to be elected mayor of L.A. To do it, Yordi stoked racial fears. He pushed the idea that if his opponent won, L.A. would be taken over by those he called black power left-wing radicals. It is your victory, not mine. You get the word. You get it. I just happen to be the candidate. But the job had to be done by all of you, my dear friends. And... It may have been a victory for Yordi and his supporters, but it was a bitter defeat for Bradley. And for Willie. he just spent much of his newly earned political capital, and he lost. He wasn't getting his track, the one thing he now wanted more than anything. And he couldn't even race on the streets of L.A. Yordi had seen to that. How he'd fight back would shape the rest of his life. That's next time on Larger Than Life. Larger Than Life is reported and written by me, your host, Daniel Miller, for the Los Angeles Times. Our producer is Grant Irving. The editor is Catherine St. Louis. Kimmy Yoshino is our story supervisor. The executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Additional production by Karin Navatia. Sound design and mixing by Daniel Turek. Music by Nolan Schneider and Grant Irving. The sound engineer is Mike Heflin. Research by Scott Wilson, fact-checking by Laura Bullard, and copy editing by Rubena Azhar. Larger Than Life was recorded at Los Angeles Times Studios in El Segundo, California. The archival audio in this episode is courtesy of eFootage.com and Film Archives. For more on Big Willie Robinson, including videos, photo galleries, and essays, visit latimes.com slash larger-than-life. Join our Facebook group. You can find us at Larger Than Life Podcast to discuss the story. And I'm on Twitter at Daniel N. Miller. You can also learn more about the story by subscribing to our Play Next newsletter, Go to latimes.com slash playnext. Larger Than Life is available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. It really helps spread the word. Larger Than Life is a production of LA Times Studios with support from Neon Hum Media. Two, one, two, one.